Hello and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, Time Magazine, The Afro.com website, The Undefeated.com website, The Grio website, The Kansas City Star, and we're going to start off today's program with a poem that was originally published in the L.A. Times. Coming up next in the African American Hour is something a little bit different. It's going to be a poem. This comes from the Los Angeles Times at latimes.com, and the title of this article is Amanda Gorman Writes End of Year Poem, New Day's Lyric. It was compiled by the Associated Press and was originally published in latimes.com on December 29th, 2021. Amanda Gorman is ending her extraordinary year on a hopeful note. The 23-year-old poet, whose reading of her own The Hill We Climb at President Biden's inauguration in January made her an international sensation, posted a new work and accompanying video Wednesday on Instagram to mark the end of 2021. New Day's lyric is a five-stanza, 48-line resolution with themes of struggle and healing known to admirers of The Hill We Climb and of her best-selling collection, Call Us What We Carry, which came out early in December. What was cursed, we will cure. What was plagued, we will prove pure. Where we tend to argue, we will try to agree. Those fortunes we forswore, now the future we foresee. Where we weren't aware, we're now awake. Those moments we missed. And now these moments we make, the moments we meet and our hearts once all together beaten, now all together beat. Poets rarely enjoy the kind of attention Gorman received in 2021, but in an email to the Associated Press, she reflected less on her own success than on the state of the country. Gorman wrote that the chaos and instability of the last year had made her reject the idea of going back to normal and instead fight to move beyond it. She mentioned Maya Angelou's poem, Human Family, and added, To be a family, a country, doesn't necessitate that we be the same or agree on everything, only that we continue to try to see the best in each other and move forward into a shared future. Whether we like it or not, we are in this together. Gorman offered an alliterative response when asked what inspired New Day's lyric, telling the Associated Press that she wanted to write a lyric to honor the hardships, hurt, hope, and healing of 2021, while also hearkening the potential of 2022. This is such a unique New Year's Day because even as we toast our glasses to the future, we still have our heads bowed for what has been lost, she wrote. I think one of the most important things the New Year reminds us is of that old adage, this too shall pass. You can't relive the same day twice, meaning every dawn is a new one and every year an opportunity to step into the light. In her Instagram post, Gorman urged readers to donate money to the International Rescue Committee, rescue.org, to help those affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Instagram's parent company, Meta, has pledged $50,000. New Day's Lyric May this be the day we come together. Morning we come to mend, withered we come to weather. Torn we come to tend, battered we come to better. Tethered by this year of yearning, 
we are learning that though we weren't ready for this, we have been readied by it. We steadily vow that no matter how we are weighed down, we must always pave a way forward. This hope is our door, our portal, even if we never get back to normal. Someday we can venture beyond it, to leave the known and take the first steps. So let us not return to what was normal, but reach toward what is next. What was cursed, we will cure. What was plagued, we will prove pure. Where we tend to argue, we will try to agree. Those fortunes we foreswore, now the future we foresee. Where we weren't aware, we're now awake. Those moments we missed are now these moments we make, the moments we meet. And our hearts, once all together beaten, now all together beat. Come, look up with kindness yet, for even solace can be sourced from sorrow. We remember not just for the sake of yesterday, but to take on tomorrow. We heed this old spirit in a new day's lyric. In our hearts we hear it. For all lang sign, my dear, for all lang sign. Be bold, saying time this year. Be bold, saying time. For when you honor yesterday, tomorrow ye will find. Know what we fought need not be forgot nor for none. It defines us, binds us as one. Come over, join this day just begun. For whenever we come together, we will forever overcome. That was the article and poem from the Los Angeles Times. Amanda Gorman writes end-of-year poem, New Day's Lyric. Originally published December 29, 2021. And this article was compiled by the Associated Press. By the time this edition of the African American Hour airs, the 2021 Kwanzaa celebration will have passed. However, the seven values of Kwanzaa are worth recognizing throughout the year. Next is a story from the December 27th edition of theafro.com. The title is, What You Need to Know About Kwanzaa, and it was written by Laura Onyenejo, O-N-Y-E-N-E-H-O. Starting December 26th, the seven-night celebration of Kwanzaa begins. This African-American and Pan-African holiday is celebrated by millions worldwide in the goal to strengthen the values of African heritage and reinforce community among African-Americans. If you are unfamiliar with this holiday tradition, here is what you need to know about Kwanzaa. Who created Kwanzaa? Dr. Malana Karinga, professor and chairman of Black Studies at California State University, created Kwanzaa in 1966. The word Kwanzaa derives from the Swahili phrase Matunda ya Kwanzaa, or first fruits, referring to the agricultural festival found throughout Africa. It became popular in the 1980s and 90s. In tandem with the Black Power Movement, Dr. Karinga searched for ways to unify African Americans. He founded a cultural organization called US and began researching African harvest celebrations. He combined the influences of several different celebrations such as those of the Ashanti tribe in Ghana and Zulu of South Africa. What are the seven symbols of Kwanzaa? There are seven symbols of Kwanzaa. One, the Kanara or candle holder. The Kanara symbolizes the ancestors, the originators. 
two Mishumba Saba, seven candles, three red, three green, one black. The black candle means umoji and is lit on December 26. The three green candles represent Nia, Umoja, and Imani, which are placed to the right of the Umoja candle, while the three red candles representing Kujichakulia, Ujamaa, and Kuumba are on the left. These three colors come from the flag created by Marcus Garvey. Three, Nkeka, the mat, symbolizes the historical and tradition foundation of the ancestors. Four, Mazao, crops, representing the gathering of the families reaffirming their responsibility to each other. Five, Muhindi, ears of corn, represents fertility and reproduction of children, raising up the children to be upstanding members of their communities. Six, Kikombe Cha Umoja, unity cup, is a special cup used to perform the libation ritual. In many African countries, libations are poured in memory of loved ones who have passed away. Seven, Zawadi, gifts, represents the fruits of the labor of the parents and the rewards sown by the children. Every evening, there is a candle lighting ceremony that provides the opportunity for families to discuss the meaning and principles of Kwanzaa. On the first night, the black candle in the center is lit, representing the principle of Umoja, or unity. Every night for seven days, a candle is lit and a principle is discussed. What are the seven principles? The seven principles of Kwanzaa are called Nguzu Saba, according to the Kwanzaa website. Day one, unity, Umoja, sustaining unity within the family, community, nation, and race. Day two, self-determination, Kujichagulia, defining, naming, and speaking for oneself. Day three, collective work and responsibility, Ujima, uplifting your community, solving problems as a collective. Day four, cooperative economics, Ujamaa, uplifting the community economically, buying black. Day five, purpose, Nia, building and developing the community to restore people to their greatness. Day six, creativity, Kuumba. It encourages people to utilize their talents to inspire the world and the next generations. Day seven, faith. Imani. Black people, educators, and leaders believe in the victory of their struggle. That is the article titled, What You Need to Know About Kwanzaa, from Afro.com. It was originally published December 27, 2021, and was written by Laura Onyenejo. The next story on today's program is about a story I've covered before, the Supreme Court decision of Plessy versus Ferguson. But this is an update from Time magazine titled, Louisiana Governor Pardons Homer Plessy 125 years after the Supreme Court of the United States separate but equal ruling. It was written by Olivia Waxman and was published January 5th, 2022. On January 11th, 1897, Homer Plessy pleaded guilty in a New Orleans district court for sitting in a whites-only train car eight months after the United States Supreme Court upheld Louisiana's Separate Car Act and a doctrine of separate but equal legislation that made way for segregation laws across the United States. 
Now, nearly 125 years later, Plessy's conviction has been wiped from his record. On January 5th, Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards signed a posthumous pardon for Plessy during a ceremony in New Orleans. The stroke of my pen on this pardon, while momentous, it doesn't erase generations of pain and discrimination. It doesn't fix all of our present challenges. We can all acknowledge we have a long way to go, but this pardon is a step in the right direction, Edwards said. I am beyond grateful that I have a small part to play in ensuring that Homer Plessy's legacy will be entirely defined by the righteousness of his cause and undefiled by an unjust criminal conviction. Keith Plessy, Homer Plessy's first cousin three times removed, said he experienced a wave of emotion when he first heard that Edwards would sign the pardon. My left eye gave up and a tear just rolled down the side of my face, he tells Time. It felt like I was not standing on my feet. It was surreal. The Orleans Parish District Attorney's Office submitted the application for a pardon on November 5th in what's believed to be the first use of a 2006 state law, which allows people, as well as the descendants of people, convicted of breaking state or local laws designed to maintain or enforce racial separation or discrimination, to apply for pardons. The application comes out of the office's Civil Rights Division, which has been tasked with looking for wrongful convictions. Although my predecessor many years ago prosecuted Plessy, he should not have, Jason Williams, Orleans Parish District Attorney, tells Time. I think it's really important that we talk about the broad discretion that prosecutors have because the ability to prosecute someone under the law does not always mean that district attorneys and prosecutors and state attorneys should. The History Behind Plessy v. Ferguson on June 7, 1892, Homer Plessy, a mixed-race shoemaker, was arrested for sitting in a whites-only East Louisiana railroad car and violating the state's 1890 Separate Car Act, which said that railroads had to have equal but separate accommodations for the white and colored races. Plessy had boarded the train as part of an organized effort by a local civil rights group called the Citizens Committee to raise awareness about the law. Five months later, on November 18, 1892, Judge John H. Ferguson ruled that his actions had broken it. The case was appealed to the United States Supreme Court, but four years later, on May 18, 1896, the justices ruled 7-1 to to uphold Ferguson's decision in favor of segregation, ruling that facilities that separated the races did not violate the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution's 14th Amendment. Faced with the choice of spending 20 days in jail or paying a $25 fine on January 11, 1897, Plessy pled guilty and paid the fine. The effect of the decision was long-lasting, providing a legal basis for segregation laws nationwide throughout the first half of the 20th century. As Imani Perry, professor of African-American studies at Princeton University, explained to Time in 2020, since 1876, the courts and Congress had steadily eroded the Reconstruction Amendment's promises to African Americans, suffrage, equal protection of the law, and due process before the law. But the Plessy opinion and its embrace of separate but equal let African Americans know once and for all that despite the Constitution's guarantees, their fundamental rights would not be protected. 
The separate but equal precedent wouldn't be overturned until 1954 when the United States Supreme Court ruled on Brown versus Board of Education that racially segregated public schools violated the Equal Protection Clause, paving the way for other successful challenges to segregation and galvanizing a new wave of the civil rights movement. Among those growing up in the segregated society that Plessy versus Ferguson facilitated were two now 64-year-old descendants of figures closely tied to the case, Keith Plessy and Phoebe Ferguson, the great-great-granddaughter of the New Orleans District Court judge in the case. Homer Plessy died on March 1, 1925, at the age of 62. Both remember childhoods in segregated New Orleans, Ferguson was not able to sit next to her black babysitter in a movie theater, while Plessy couldn't enter certain restaurants through their front doors. The Jim Crow era of segregation following Plessy versus Ferguson left a deep and painful legacy that we are still dealing with today, as Orleans Parish District Attorney Williams puts it, and we all can see it in social inequities, whether it's housing insecurity, food insecurity, poverty, violence in certain communities, how the criminal legal system is used in certain neighborhoods based upon the wealth or complexion of those people. Plessy and Ferguson only found out about their connections to the Supreme Court case when they were in their 30s and 40s, respectively. Their families had never talked about these ancestors growing up. They were introduced to each other in 2004 by Keith Weldon Metley, author of We as Freeman, Plessy versus Ferguson. I reached my hand out to shake Ferguson's hand as she started apologizing for slavery, discrimination, separate but equal, Keith Plessy recalls. And I said, we weren't born then. We're not responsible for this. It's no longer Plessy versus Ferguson. It's Plessy and Ferguson. In 2009, they together founded the Plessy and Ferguson Foundation, a civil rights education nonprofit aiming to help schools teach the history of the case and its dark legacy. And thanks in part to Keith Plessy's efforts, Louisiana has been celebrating the day of Homer Plessy's arrest as Homer Plessy Day since 2005. A strip of the street where he was arrested was renamed Homer Plessy Way in 2018. This past fall, local civil rights attorney Mary Howell was brainstorming ideas for future foundation programming with Phoebe Ferguson and decided to find some way to mark the 125th anniversary of Homer Plessy's prosecution. Howe made the Orleans Parish District Attorney's Office aware of the anniversary, and it was then that a staffer found the law that allowed them to pursue the posthumous pardon. The State Pardons Board approved their application unanimously on November 12th. The approval was a long time coming, says Keith Plessy. I am so happy that there was something that we could do to make a different ending to this story, Phoebe Ferguson adds, noting that her tie to Judge Ferguson has always felt like a burden. I can't say that it lifts the burden of his name being attached to a conviction that had such horrific results for so long, she said. I can't escape the knowledge I have about the harms done in Plessy versus Ferguson. That in and of itself will always feel like a burden to some degree. But in some ways, it's a good burden in that I can use my position to help others with a deeper understanding of the role of white Americans in white supremacy and lynchings and voter suppression. That was the article... Louisiana Governor pardons Homer Plessy 125 years after Supreme Court of the United States separate but equal ruling. It was published in Time magazine originally on January 5th, 2022, and was written by Olivia B. Waxman.
Up next is a movie review from the Undefeated.com website. The title is King Richard Squanders Its Chance to Tell the Story of Tennis Ruling Family. The subtitle is Will Smith Disappoints in the Title Role of Venus and Serena Williams' Father. It was originally published November 22, 2021, and was written by Soraya Nadia McDonald. Her first name is spelled S-O-R-A-Y-A. King Richard has a Will Smith problem. The movie, now available on HBO Max and in theaters, is obviously meant to be award catnip for Smith and a cinematic crowning for Richard Williams, father of Venus and Serena. And yet, Smith's starring role may be the weakest part of the film. Directed by Reynaldo Marcus Green, King Richard focuses on the early years of the tennis careers of Venus and Serena Williams, from their days and nights training on the cracked and leaf-filled surfaces of Compton, California municipal courts to Venus's professional debut. Richard has a plan. He and his wife, Oracine, portrayed by Ingenue Ellis, spelled capital A-U-N-J-A-N-U-E, will add two more children to their family, and those children will grow up to be tennis prodigies who shake up the world. Enter Venus, played by Sanaya Sidney, spelled S-A-N-I-Y-Y-A, and Serena, played by Demi Singleton. Her first name is spelled D-E-M-I. Sydney and Singleton are a delight on screen. Their tennis skills, particularly their ability to match the Williams sisters' style of play, are impressive. They both bring an easy, uncomplicated innocence to the screen, depicting the girls the Williams sisters have always maintained they are, bouncy, smart, and unafraid to challenge their father. Which brings us to the matter of Smith. The paint-by-numbers script penned by Zach Balin does not provide Richard Williams with an interior life so much as a sequence of events to which he reacts. Alice handles this challenge better than her leading man, having built a career on doing more with less, which is part of the reason her performance in Episode 7 of Lovecraft Country feels so revelatory. This point becomes especially evident in a moment where the film contrasts the training of young Venus and Serena. Venus's coach, Paul Cohen, portrayed by Tony Goldwyn, will only agree to train one girl for free, not both. So Richard and Oracine adapt. Richard accompanies Venus to the country club and records everything she learns with a camcorder. Oracine, in turn, uses these videos to teach Serena, who is devastated that she won't get the same professional training. Alice, as Oracine, explodes with such buoyant warmth and joyous encouragement in these scenes that she makes the case for a film that would delve closely into the making of Queens, Oracine, and Serena. In just a few frames, she and Singleton provide a world of context for the relentlessness of the younger sister's style of play and the chip on her shoulder something she has carried throughout her career. King Richard tries so hard to showcase Richard Williams as a non-threatening, well-meaning person that Smith, in his efforts to capture Williams' fairly standard black rural Louisiana accent, often lands somewhere between Bagger Vance Light and Uncle Ruckus. Balin's writing at points becomes a cringy albatross, such as the one where Smith as Williams utters, This junior psych it worse than the ghetto. Smith's exaggerated affectation colors Richard as a bumpkin given to irrational bouts of anger. It's a performance that gives little insight into the many contradictions of the often soft-spoken Richard, nor does it bother to reconcile that with his seeming 
to the many white tennis folks who he exasperated and who exasperated him, mercurial irascibility. Richard Williams is not a teddy bear, with good reason, and it's perfectly okay to acknowledge that. In fact, it is necessary to fully understand what makes the rise in decades-long dominance of the Williams citrus such a quintessentially American saga. But Smith's interpretation is instead reminiscent of The Pursuit of Happiness, a similarly simplified tale of idealistic bootstrapping based on a real-life figure. This attempt at a broad, uplifting crowd-pleaser largely eludes how Richard's experience of growing up with the terrorism of witnessing a childhood friend be lynched, along with the violence of poverty. Williams grew up picking cotton, formed lifelong scars, and shaped grooves into the rituals of living life and raising children. Perhaps the scene where Smith struggles to move beyond a surface portrayal become most apparent is the one that recreates a now-notorious ABC News interview with a 14-year-old Venus, in which Richard cuts in to protect his daughter from interlocutor John McKenzie, who keeps questioning her about her unshakable confidence. In King Richard, Smith's take has Williams practically exploding at the interviewer in ways that didn't quite jibe with reality, but more importantly with the rest of the film and its bend-over-backward effort to soften Richard. Colorism plays a role here, too. It often arises when discussing the casting of black women because lighter skin is so bound up in Western standards of feminine desirability. But it has an effect with men, too. Smith's lighter skin serves as another way to visually defang Richard, whose darker hue has so often contributed to him being perceived as more disagreeable or demanding than the average white tennis parent, even as his methods provided a template for parents of future stars such as Naomi Osaka. It is understandable to want to course correct from years of sports media coverage in which Williams has been depicted as a quixotic anti-white crank, but this attempt at gentle hagiography backfires. Interestingly, a different Smith biopic, Ali, does a much better job of rounding out a complex sports figure whose outward puffed-up arrogance and radical self-love often served as a response to and defense mechanism against American racism. Venus and Serena Williams are executive producers of the film and have appeared with Smith to promote it. But like so many studio biopics, family buy-in does not necessarily translate to lasting, probing, meaningful art. There are many chapters of the Williams saga, and King Richard is only one. May future iterations possess the elegance, bravery, fierceness, and clarity that the Williams sisters have so long brought to the tennis court. That was the article, King Richard Squanders Its Chance to Tell the Story of Tennis's Ruling Family. It's from the Undefeated.com website and was written by Soraya Nadia McDonald and was originally published November 22, 2021. The next story for today's African American Hour comes from the GRIO website. The title is, Black Farmers in Mississippi Say They're Losing Jobs to White South Africans. This story was originally published November 12, 2021. It was written by Nye McGee. That's capital N-Y, capital M. A-G-E-E. -E. A group of black farm workers in the Mississippi Delta is taking legal action against Pitts Farm Partnership, alleging they were displaced by higher-paid white foreigners from South Africa. 
Six longtime black farm workers allege in a federal lawsuit that their bosses had them train white immigrants flown in from South Africa on how to work the fields, only to replace the black workers with the foreign workers years later, the New York Times reports. For the plaintiffs, Andrew Johnson, Wesley Reed, Gregory Strong, and Richard Strong reportedly did agricultural work on the farm, which usually paid a minimum wage of $7.25 an hour and $8.25 hourly for weekend work. Two of the plaintiffs, Stacy Griffin and James Simpson, drove trucks during harvest time and had been paid $9 an hour since 2018. The farm allegedly paid the white workers from South Africa $9.87 an hour in 2014 and increased the rate until it reached $11.83 an hour in 2020, per the report. Richard Strong, 50, said the company violated regulations of the Foreign Worker Visa Program. The white immigrants were paid more than the $7.25 hourly wage that the local black workers were making. Strong says immigrant workers are being lured to the United States on H-2A visas for wages up to $11 an hour. Pitt's Farm Partnership, which grows cotton, soybeans, and corn in Mississippi Delta's Sunflower County, has historically used local black farm workers to perform field work. That changed about a decade ago when the farm operation turned to white workers from South Africa who were flown in on special guest worker visas per the report. Virtually all new workers entering into the agricultural workforce these days are H-2A workers, said Craig Regalbrug, a veteran agricultural industry advocate. His name is spelled capital R-E-G-E-L-B-R-U-G-G-E. Black workers have been doing this work for generations, said Ty Pinkins, a lawyer at the Mississippi Center for Justice, which is representing the black farm workers in the lawsuit, according to the report. They know the land. They know the seasons. They know the equipment. The New York Times article notes that growers brought in more South Africans with each passing year, and they are now employed at more than 100 farms across the Delta. The lawsuit alleges that the discriminatory processes of hiring only white workers from South Africa is a violation of civil rights laws. The H-2A program allows U.S. farmers to hire foreign workers amid a shortage of American farmhands. It does not allow farmers to pay their American workforce less than the foreign workers or to replace willing and able U.S. workers, said Amal Buhabib, an attorney for Southern Migrant Legal Services in a news release. His name is spelled capital B-O-U-H-A-B-I-B. That's the story. Black farmers in Mississippi say they're losing jobs to white South Africans. It is from the GRIO website and was originally published November 12th, 2021. It was written by Nye McGee. Coming up next in today's African American Hour is an op-ed piece from the Wall Street Journal. It was originally published December 22, 2021, and was written by Jason L. Riley. The title is, By Ditching the SAT, Harvard Hurts Minority Students. Just before the start of my senior year in college, I received a job offer from the local newspaper. A short time later, I ran into a former editor of the college paper where I had previously worked and told her the news. Congratulations, Jason, she said. I heard they were looking for more minorities. I don't know if it was her intention, 
but the remark stung. The episode crystallized for me one of the major drawbacks of affirmative action policies. In the name of helping some blacks, they taint the accomplishments of all blacks. No one with any self-respect wants to be perceived as a token, whether in the workplace or on a college campus. Black professionals who came of age in the era of racial preferences have been dealing with this stigma for decades. Stephen Carter, a Yale law professor, recalls applying to Harvard Law School in the 1970s after completing his undergraduate degree at Stanford. The school initially rejected him but reversed its decision after learning that he was black. Naturally, I was insulted, Mr. Carter writes in his memoir, Reflections of an Affirmative Action Baby. Stephen Carter, the white male, was not good enough for Harvard Law School. Stephen Carter, the black male, was not only good enough but rated agonized telephone calls urging him to attend. And Stephen Carter, color unknown, must have been white. How else could he have achieved what he did in college? More than four decades later, Harvard is still playing these games, using race as a decisive factor in admissions while pretending otherwise. Last week, the school announced that it was dropping its SAT requirement and cited limited access to testing sites during the pandemic as the reason. Don't believe it. The real goal is to achieve a predetermined demographic composition on campus and standardized tests make that more difficult. Harvard has joined a growing list of schools that are giving less weight to objective admission standards, test scores, grades, extracurricular activities, in favor of subjective personality measurements like kindness, courage, integrity, and likability. This trend is not limited to higher education. The attack on academic meritocracy includes efforts to eliminate honor rolls in elementary schools, nix gifted and talented programs in middle school, and stop selective high schools from using admissions exams. Oregon's governor signed a bill earlier this year that suspends high school proficiency requirements. Students in the state will no longer have to demonstrate that they can read, write, and do math at a high school level to graduate. Those leading us down this path insist that they are helping minority students who struggle academically. But it would be more accurate to say that they are giving up on these students. Eliminating the tests won't eliminate the racial achievement gap because the test is not causing the gap, merely exposing it. How do you help students move forward without an honest assessment of where they stand? Harvard is less concerned with black education than it is with protecting its brand, which is enhanced by exhibiting a racially diverse student body whether or not such a focus is in the long-term interest of black students who are admitted with lower standards and ill-prepared to handle the workload. Sadly, academic standards are being diluted or eliminated out of an unspoken fear that blacks will never measure up. Liberals like to blame discrimination or systemic racism for these uneven outcomes. But if you really believe that teachers and principals and college administrators have it in for black kids, a standardized test is your best friend. It's much easier for the admissions officer who you fear exhibits unconscious bias to justify rejecting an applicant based on an entirely subjective personality score. It's much harder for the school to justify rejecting someone with an SAT score in the 95th percentile and other measurable achievements. This is the lesson of the Jewish experience a century ago, when elite schools like Harvard adopted a holistic approach to admissions to limit Jewish enrollment. And it's why Harvard is currently being sued by plaintiffs who allege that today's Asian-American applicants are receiving the old Jewish treatment. This war on meritocracy also seems at odds with popular opinion about racial preferences. 
A Pew Research Center poll from 2019 found that 73% of respondents, including 78% of whites, 65% of Hispanics, 62% of blacks, and 58% of Asians, say colleges should not consider race in admissions. And last year, Californians soundly rejected a ballot referendum that effectively would have reinstated race-based college admissions in state universities, which voters banned in 1996. Liberal elites continue to believe that most blacks can't compete on a level playing field and they don't mind stigmatizing the ones that can. Thankfully, everyday Americans of all hues seem to disagree. That was an op-ed piece from the Wall Street Journal, originally published December 22, 2021, and written by Jason L. Riley. The title was, By Ditching the SAT, Harvard Hurts Minority Students. Next on today's African American Hour is a story from the Afro.com website. The title is, Study Reveals Racial Pay Gap for Social Media Influencers. It was written by Stacy Brown and was originally published December 31, 2021. The racial pay gap has long presented issues for African Americans in corporate America and other industries. It's now filtered to social media. MSLUS, in partnership with the Influencer League, unveiled a first-of-its-kind research study, Time to Face the Influencer Pay Gap, uncovering a vast racial divide in influencer compensation. According to the research, the racial pay gap between white and black, indigenous, and people of color stands at 29%. When explicitly focused on the gap between white and black influencers, it widens to 35%. It's a growing issue that black creators face, said Howard University senior Carrington, New York, who manages the TikTok account for the National Newspaper Publishers Association. Not long ago, it was reported that black TikTok users were shadow banned, which definitely prevents their content from being monetized, York stated. Michael Washington, a broadcast journalism major at Howard University, said the report didn't surprise him. Think about it financially. In the report, it talks about how 49% of black creators who contribute regularly say they are offered low market value, Washington noted. These black influencers are saying when they go to the brands and companies and they are not receiving the right tools to fend for themselves. They are not shown how to make a deal, he continued. When this happens, it makes the gap wider because they don't have that professional representation or professional advice. That makes it harder for them to argue that this is racially biased. It comes down to pay transparency. The report noted that those forces are amplified by orders of magnitude in the young and unregulated influencer industry where affluence and connections pay an outsized role and with social platform algorithms perpetuating inequity. Researchers found that a remarkable 77 percent of black influencers reported follower counts in the lowest pay tiers where compensation from brands averaged just $27,727 versus 59% of white influencers. Conversely, only 23% of black influencers made it into the highest tiers where earnings averaged $108,000 versus 41% of white influencers. As concluded by the researchers, the result is that in this industry in particular, an unequal playing field becomes a nearly unbridgeable opportunity gap. Further, the majority, 59% of black influencers, 
reported that they felt negatively impacted financially when they posted on issues of race versus 14% of white influencers. The report also flies in the face of the outpouring of diversity, equity, and inclusion pledges made by corporations around the globe. When it comes to a lot of these institutions, performative activism comes to mind, York said. A lot of what they say doesn't always show with their actions. There have been rumors of a racial pay gap for years, but no one in our industry has quantified it until now, DeAnthony Jackson, digital and influencer strategist at MSL, said in a news release. These are stark numbers by any measure. Just compare the 35% gap between white and black influencers to the pay gaps in other industries. Education, 8%. Business and financial, 16%. Construction, 19%. Media, sports, and entertainment, 16%. The gap this study uncovered in influencer marketing vastly overshadows the gaps in any other industry. That was the article, Study Reveals Racial Pay Gap for Social Media Influencers, written by Stacy Brown, and it was originally published December 31st, 2021, and it appeared at the Afro.com website. Next in today's program is an op-ed piece from the Kansas City Star. It was published Thursday, December 30th, 2021, and the title is, Is Teen Who Died in Crisis, Wichita's George Floyd. It was written by the Kansas City Star editorial board. After being restrained with a device a judge has likened to torture, a handcuffed black 17-year-old died in custody in Wichita. And yet, three months later, no one has been held accountable for what the medical examiner called a homicide. The foster father of Cedric C.J. Lofton told police early on September 24th that the teenager was having a mental episode. The young man died two days later. His heart and breathing stopped after he was restrained at the Cedric County Juvenile Intake and Assessment Center. This week, the medical examiner ruled his death was a homicide from complications of cardiopulmonary arrest sustained after physical struggle while restrained in the prone position. Lofton was handcuffed and lying on his stomach when he was fatally injured, according to the medical examiner. Lofton's autopsy found acute respiratory failure, acute kidney injury, and notably anoxic brain injury, which is caused by a complete lack of oxygen to the brain. The family's lawyer says the autopsy and the surveillance video that has been shown only to the family and their lawyers both prove it's a case of excessive force against a teen in crisis. Wichita and Central County officials aren't saying much of anything pending an investigation by the Kansas Bureau of Investigation. Authorities initially maintained there were no serious injuries to Lofton, only scratches and a bruise. But that narrative was a deflection from the truth, according to the family attorney, Andrew M. Stroth, managing partner of Chicago's civil rights law firm, Action Injury Law Group, which is working alongside Wichita civil rights lawyer Stephen Hart. The autopsy speaks for itself, just like the video speaks for itself. They took away Cedric's breath. He could not breathe. Stroth wouldn't go into details about what the video shows, but he says it demonstrates that there was undue excessive force and pressure, and the autopsy supports that evidence. Several correctional officers involved are on paid administrative leave, according to a county spokesperson. 
The KBI said that police who responded to the initial call used a full body wrap restraint on him for an extended period. A federal judge last year described a similar device as unconstitutional torture and illegal punishment and prohibited its use at an Iowa facility for delinquent boys with mental disabilities. An Arkansas ombudsman for the state's juvenile justice system had himself put into a similar restraint, noting afterward that, I found difficulty in breathing and in turn increased anxiety. In other words, the last thing someone already in mental distress needs. The Wichita Police Department did not return a request for comment. That system was not designed for Cedric Lofton, that's for sure, says Stroth. Lofton's family spokesman, the Reverend Maurice Evans of Wichita, who worked to keep protest after George Floyd's murder peaceful in his city, says he also tried to help authorities respond immediately to the Lofton tragedy. He suggested that they promise Lofton's family justice and compensation, too. He says he was rebuffed. I think that people are going to be upset, the pastor of powerful community church says. I think that they are going to be justifiably angry. And since they chose not to do anything with it, that anger is going to have to outlet in some way. And I'm not going to try and stop it. It's a disaster. And I don't think they're taking it as serious as it needs to be. I've tried to work with them and help them through this, and there has not been an interest. It's amazing that this even needs to be said post-Floyd. But delay, deflection, and defensiveness only make an already combustible situation more likely to explode. That was, it's teen who died in crisis, Wichita's George Floyd. An op-ed piece from the Kansas City Star that was originally published December 30th, 2021. It was written by the Kansas City Star editorial board. Next in today's African American Hour is an obituary. It's from the New York Times. The title of the obituary is Bell Hooks, Pathbreaking Black Feminist Dies at 69. The subtitle is she insisted that the fight for women's rights had to take into account the diverse experiences of working class and black women. It was written by Clay Rison and was originally published December 15, 2021. Bell Hooks, whose incisive, wide-ranging writing on gender and race helped push feminism beyond its white middle-class worldview to include the voices of black and working-class women, died on Wednesday at her home in Berea, Kentucky. She was 69. Her sister, Gwenda Motley, said the cause was end-stage renal failure. Starting in 1981 with her book, Ain't I a Woman? Black Women and Feminism, Miss Hooks, who insisted on using all lowercase letters in her name, argued that feminism's claim to speak for all women had pushed the unique experiences of working class and black women to the margins. A devaluation of black womanhood occurred as a result of the sexual exploitation of black women during slavery that has not altered in the course of hundreds of years, she wrote. If that seems like conventional wisdom today, that is in large part because of the enormous impact Miss Hooks had on both feminism and black women, many of whom had resisted aligning with a movement they felt was designed to diminish their experiences. I think of Bell Hooks as being pivotal to an entire generation of black feminists who saw that for the first time they had the license to call themselves black feminists. 
Kimberly Crenshaw, a law professor at Columbia, said in an interview. She was utterly courageous in terms of putting on paper thoughts that many of us might have had in private. Womanhood, Miss Hooks said, cannot be reduced to a singular experience, but had to be considered within a framework encompassing race and class. She called for a new form of feminism, one that recognized differences and inequalities among women as a way of creating a new, more inclusive movement, one that she later said had largely been achieved. She applied a similar and equally trenchant criticism to black anti-racism, which she said was often grounded in a patriarchal worldview that excluded the experiences of black women. But she also recognized in books like We Real Cool, Black Men and Masculinity, 2004, that such a worldview resulted from centuries of oppression and exclusion of black men. Miss Hooks resisted the title public intellectual, but by the 2000s, she had achieved celebrity status. Her books, written in a flowing, jargon-free style, were required reading among a wide range of college courses. She appeared on stage with actress Laverne Cox and activists like Janet Mock, and on the bookstand of the model and actress Emily Ratajkowski. Her last name is spelled capital R-A-T-A-J-K-O-W-S-K-I who cited Miss Hooks as an inspiration while writing her recent essay collection, My Body, 2021. Part of Miss Hooks' appeal was the sheer diversity of her interests. Her work across some 30 books encompassed literary criticism, children's fiction, self-help, memoir, and poetry, and it tackled not just subjects like education, capitalism, and American history, but also love and friendship. In Teaching to Transgress, Education as the Practice of Freedom, 1994, she argued that the American education system had been constructed to quell dissent and shape young people into productive workers, and that it was therefore up to teachers to push against the grain by showing students how to use knowledge to resist. She did just that in her own classes, instructing her students to see critical thinking and reading as liberating acts. She was a foundational influence on how I understood the possibility of becoming a writer. Min Jin Lee, the author of the novel Pachinko, who took two classes with Miss Hooks at Yale, said in an interview, She taught me how to read, but more than that, she taught me how to read as a global person. Bell Hooks was the pen name of Gloria Jean Watkins, who was born on September 25, 1952 in Hopkinsville, Kentucky a small city in the southwestern part of the state not far from the Tennessee border. Though her childhood in the semi-rural South exposed her to vicious examples of white supremacy, her tight-knit black community in Hopkinsville showed her the possibility of resistance from the margins, of finding community among the oppressed and drawing power from those connections, a theme to which she would return frequently in her work. Her father, Viotis Watkins, was a postal worker, and her mother, Rosabelle Oldham Watkins, was a homemaker. Along with her sister, Miss Motley, Miss Hooks is survived by three other sisters, Sarah Chambers, Valeria Watkins, and Angela Malone, and her brother, Kenneth. Her early education took place in segregated schools, though she moved to white majority schools once the state integrated its education system, an experience in navigating complex racial and gender hierarchies that she later drew on in her memoir, Bone Black, Memories of Girlhood, 1996. She was an avid reader, 
vacuuming up books and reading long past her bedtime. She dreamed of becoming an architect and of leaving small-town Kentucky behind. Gloria learned to read and write at an early age and even proclaimed she would be famous one day, her sister said in a statement released after her death. Every night we would try to sleep, but the sounds of her writing or page turning caused us to yell down to mom to make her turn the light off. Miss Hooks began her climb at Stanford University, from which she graduated in 1974 with a degree in English literature. While still an undergraduate, she began writing Ain't I a Woman, its title borrowed from a speech from the black abolitionist Sojourner Truth. She received a master's degree in English from the University of Wisconsin in 1976 and a doctorate in literature from the University of California, Santa Cruz in 1983 with a dissertation on Toni Morrison. Her first book was a collection of poems, And There We Wept, which was published in 1978 while she was teaching at the University of Southern California. It was the first time she used the pen name Bell Hooks in homage to her maternal grandmother, Belle Blair Hooks, to whom she was often compared as a child. She insisted on rendering it in lowercase letters to emphasize, she often said, the substance of books, not who I am. After teaching at a number of institutions, including Yale, Oberlin, and the City College of New York, she returned to Kentucky in 2004 to take up a teaching position at Berea College. A decade later, the college created the Bell Hooks Institute as a center for her writing and teaching. By the 2010s, she had entered semi-retirement and was spending her days writing, meditating, and visiting with her neighbors in Berea, an intellectually vibrant town in the foothills of the Appalachians. I loved how open her table always was with such hard conversations, mediated by her incredible balance of encouraging patience and absolute honesty, the novelist Silas House, a friend and Berea instructor, said in an email. Especially in her later work, Miss Hooks emphasized the importance of community and of healing as the end goal of movements like feminism and anti-racism. Some criticized this position as papering over deep social divisions. But Miss Hooks, who described herself as a Buddhist Christian and spoke often of her friendship with the Buddhist monk Teach Nhat Han, his name is spelled capital T-H-I-C-H, capital N-H-A-T, capital H-A-N-H, insisted that love was the only way to overcome what she called the imperialist white supremacy capitalist patriarchy. I believe wholeheartedly that the only way out of domination is love, she told the philosopher George Yancey in an interview for the New York Times in 2015. And the only way into really being able to connect with others and to know how to be is to be participating in every aspect of your life as a sacrament of love. There are three images that accompany this obituary. The first shows a smiling bell hook sitting on a gray couch wearing a yellow long sleeve blouse. She's sitting with her legs crossed and her chin cupped in her left hand. Her hair is braided and pulled back. The caption reads, The author Bell Hooks in 1995. Her work across some 30 books encompassed literary criticism, children's fiction, self-help, memoir, and poetry. The second image shows the cover of her book, Ain't I a Woman? Black Women and Feminism by Bell Hooks. The caption reads, Miss Hooks' 1981 book broke new ground in making the experiences of black and working class women heard within the feminist movement. 
The third image is a picture of Bell Hooks sitting on the floor in a black dress and staring into the camera. On her left wrist is a bracelet, which is paired with a big silver ring on her finger. Beside her on the floor is a sculpture that is made up of six heads, each with a different facial expression. The caption reads, Miss Hooks in her apartment in 1997, next to an elastic sculpture, a grouping of movable clay heads. By the 2010s, she had entered semi-retirement and was spending her days writing, meditating, and visiting her neighbors in Berea, Kentucky, an intellectually vibrant town in the foothills of the Appalachians. That was the obituary for Bell Hooks. It's from the New York Times. The title is Bell Hooks' Pathbreaking Black Feminist Dies at 69. It was originally published December 16th 2021, and was written by Clay Risen. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour. Tune in next week at 2 o'clock. My name is Byron Buckner. Thanks for joining me.